Welcome to Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Jason Romrell joins us now to offer insight into two recent cases, one that began with IP considerations but in the end made a significant judgment related to attorney's fees, and another that addresses constitutional requirements for a case or controversy that can be decided by a federal court. Jason, before we get into the first case you'll be exploring today, can you give us an overview on the state of law as it relates to attorney's fees in exceptional cases? It has been just over five years since the U.S. Supreme Court's rulings in Octane Fitness and Highmark, which really reshaped the landscape for attorney's fees in patent cases. In Octane Fitness, the Supreme Court rejected the Federal Circuit's high bar for what constitutes an exceptional patent case where a losing party must pay its opponent's attorney's fees. The Supreme Court replaced the Federal Circuit's rigid test with a more flexible standard, holding that fees are warranted under 35 U.S.C. Section 285, where a particular case merely stands out from others. And over the past five years, this has predictably led to significantly more motions seeking fees, as well as an increased likelihood of success on those motions. And as a result, the risk-reward analysis has changed somewhat for many potential litigants. And similarly, in the Highmark case, which was a companion to the Octane Fitness case, the Supreme Court held that an abuse of discretion standard of review applies when reviewing a district court's exceptional case finding, which makes it more difficult to challenge fee awards on appeal. Now, of course, the abuse of discretion standard does not preclude an appellate court's correction of a district court's legal or factual error. For instance, a district court would necessarily abuse its discretion if it based its ruling on an erroneous view of the law or on a clearly erroneous assessment of the evidence. But that is still a much higher hurdle than the Federal Circuit's old de novo standard of review for assessing whether litigation was objectively baseless. Now, while there has been a significant uptick in fee awards over the last five years, those awards must still be predicted on an exceptional case finding, that is, a case that stands out from others. So there certainly hasn't been an avalanche of fee awards, as some had first predicted after Octane, Fitness, and Highmark. But even five years removed, courts are still grappling with what kind of circumstances make a case exceptional for purposes of Section 285. The first case we're looking at is Thermolife versus GNC. Tell us more about it. So the Thermolife case is a useful and somewhat unique data point in understanding the circumstances that might lead to an exceptional case finding after Octane Fitness and Highmark. The procedural history is somewhat complicated, but I think necessary to fully understand the implications of the decision. So this particular litigation arose over four patents owned by Stanford University directed to methods and compositions involving the amino acids arginine and lysine to be injected to enhance vascular function and performance. And in particular, claim one of one of these four patents, the 459 patent, was directed to a method of improving vascular nitric oxide activity of the vascular system of a human by enhancing endothelial nitric oxide. And most of the claims in the other patents similarly included an efficacy requirement along these lines for amino acids or physiologically acceptable salts of those amino acids or even required particular amounts of those identified amino acids. 
Now, Stanford had originally licensed the patents to another entity, but in February 2013, it exclusively licensed the four patents to Thermolife. And over a nine-month period, Thermolife filed a total of 81 infringement suits, including suits against Hitech and Vital in the Southern District of California. The district court consolidated all these cases together, and Thermolife alleged specifically with respect to high-tech and vital, that they were directly and indirectly infringing these four patents by making and selling various products, as well as by inducing or contributing to end users directly infringing use of those products. Now, eventually, Thermolife filed infringement contentions as required under local rules, alleging infringement of specific claims with specific high-tech and vital products. The parties agreed to this interesting phase discovery, which would initially be limited to issues of standing, claim construction, and patent validity. In other words, they decided to address all the validity issues first and, and save infringement for later, given the number of defendants involved in the case. So the district court eventually held a bench trial on invalidity, and the court determined that all of the asserted claims of all four of the patents were invalid for anticipation and obviousness. After the invalidity determination, Hitech and Vital moved for attorney's fees under Section 285. But while the litigation had centered around the validity issue, defendants' main argument for fees was that the plaintiffs did not conduct an adequate pre-suit investigation into infringement. According to Hitech and Vital, such an investigation would have revealed that the accused products did not infringe Claim 1 of the asserted 459 patent in particular, and that was the only claim that high-tech and vital specifically discussed in their fees motion. So one premise of this argument was that the accused products all contain less than one gram of L-arginine, or its salt, per serving. The other premise was that plaintiff's own validity expert made clear in, in a 2015 deposition and also in 2016 trial testimony that the studies published before these suits were ever filed, show that amounts of L-arginine less than one gram would have been ineffective to enhance nitric oxide production as required by the claims. So based on those admissions by the plaintiff's own technical expert, Hitech and Vital argued that the plaintiffs should have discovered that the accused products did not infringe claim one of the 459 patent had they read the labels on the accused products and conducted simple tests before suing. And as a secondary argument, high-tech and vital broadened their focus and accused plaintiffs of filing many suits without adequate investigation simply to try to extract some kind of nuisance value settlement from the defendants. So plaintiffs Thermal Life and Stanford uh, did not deny that the accused products were publicly available, and they neither denied the existence of simple tests to perform to determine whether the product compositions had these amino acids, nor did they assert that they had conducted such tests. While noting that the high-tech and, and vital focused entirely on claim one of the 459 patent, to the exclusion of discussing any other claims, the plaintiffs did not identify any other claims to show why they were any different as to the adequacy of the pre-suit investigation. But plaintiffs did, however, deny the accusation that they sued to extract these settlements and argued that there was insufficient record information to support the speculation that the settlements were mere nuisance values. Ultimately, the district court agreed with Hitech and Vital that the case was exceptional and awarded approximately $1.3 million in attorney's fees. And specifically, the district court agreed with defendants that 
plaintiffs had conducted an inadequate pre-filing investigation into infringement, and that resulted in objectively unreasonable infringement contentions. The court really focused in on claim one of the 459 patent, as the parties had done in their filings. And the district court determined that the plaintiffs either had not examined the accused products labels before filing, or if they did, they ignored clear label indications that those products contain less than one gram of L-arginine or its hydrochloride salt, an amount that, according to plaintiff's own validity expert, would have been ineffective to enhance nitric oxide production as required by Claim 1 of the 459 patent. So the district court also found that the plaintiff's pattern of action of bringing so many suits strongly suggested that plaintiffs did so without carefully reviewing their claims and that plaintiffs took a calculated risk that might yield some sort of nuisance value settlement. And how did the federal circuit view the district court's analysis? So after reviewing the district court's findings individually and in totality for an abuse of discretion, the federal circuit ultimately affirmed the district court's exceptional case finding and fee award. First, the federal circuit held that there was no abuse of discretion in the district court's basing its exceptional case determination on infringement, even though infringement was not fully adjudicated or litigated on the merits. While noting that this was certainly an unusual basis for fees, the court explained that it had not been pointed to any denial of plaintiff's procedural rights or due process rights. And although explaining that the deference to an exceptional case finding might be weaker where it rests on a basis that was not meaningfully considered before the fees were actually sought and awarded, the court did ultimately determine that it was not given a persuasive reason for creating a rule that fees in a situation like this would be per se legally impermissible. The Federal Circuit also held that high-tech and vitals failure to give early notice of the defects in the plaintiff's infringement allegations did not make the district court's exceptional case finding an abuse of discretion because Section 285 provides a flexible standard, as we learned from the Supreme Court in Octane Fitness. While the absence of such early notice can support a denial of fees, such notice is not rigidly required, especially in cases like this, where plaintiffs sued 81 defendants, and that reasonably led to a coordination among those defendants and an agreement for efficiency to give priority to the common issue of validity and postpone party-specific issues like infringement. The Federal Circuit also found no abuse of discretion in the inadequate investigation determination. And now in particular, the Federal Circuit explained that it could not fault the district court for focusing its analysis on a single claim because plaintiffs made no argument showing that their investigation or infringement allegations were any stronger for the other asserted claims. So the Federal Circuit found that it could not fault the district court for not separately assessing the reasonableness of the investigation for those other claims. And in any event, Nearly all of the asserted claims had efficacy requirements similar to Claim 1 of the 459 patent. And for those without an efficacy or amount requirement, plaintiffs had made no showing that even if asserting those claims were somehow justified, the burdens of the litigation would have been materially affected by the inclusion of all those other claims with efficacy or amount requirements. So the Federal Circuit also found no abuse of discretion in the inadequate investigation determination. In particular, the Federal Circuit explained that it could not fault the district court for focusing its analysis on a single claim because plaintiffs had made no argument showing 
that their investigation or infringement allegations were any stronger for the other asserted claims. So the Federal Circuit found that it could not fault a district court for not separately assessing the reasonableness of the investigation for those other claims. And in any event, nearly all of the asserted claims had efficacy requirements or amount requirements similar to claim one of the 459 patent. Now, for those claims without efficacy or amount requirements, plaintiffs made no showing that even if asserting those claims were somehow justified, the burdens of the litigation were materially unaffected by the inclusion of all those other claims with efficacy or amount requirements. Also, the Federal Circuit found no reversible error in several other of the district court's findings, including that one gram of L-arginine or its hydrochloride salt were required for infringement, that the accused products were publicly available, that the test to determine the amounts of the ingredients were simple, or that the plaintiffs performed no such tests on any of the accused products. While testing of an accused product is not necessarily required for a pre-suit investigation, whether it is necessary depends on the availability of the products at issue, the existence and costs of the tests, and whether other sufficiently reliable information exists to determine infringement. Here, two alternatives to testing, the product label and product advertising, were deficient. So there was no adequate substitute for simply testing publicly available products. And then finally, addressing the district court's determination that the plaintiffs had engaged in a pattern of filing suits to obtain nuisance settlements, the court noted that there is no minimum damages requirement for filing a patent infringement case, nor does filing a large number of suits by itself justify an inference of improper motive. Nevertheless, the Federal Circuit found no reversible error because the district court's exceptional case determination was really ultimately tied to its finding that plaintiffs had a pattern of bringing suit against many defendants without carefully reviewing their claims with an adequate pre-suit analysis. This is an area that's likely of great interest for most organizations. What are some takeaways and best practices that they should be thinking about as a result of the district court and the federal circuit's agreement in Thermolife versus GNC? So this decision really shows how an exceptional case determination depends on the totality of the circumstances. And also that to overturn an exceptional case finding on appeal, appellants really need to explain precisely how a district court applied an incorrect legal standard or why the district court's factual findings are clearly erroneous. But I think even more than that, the Thermal Life decision highlights the importance of conducting an adequate pre-suit investigation, especially if products are readily available on the market and easily testable. And for patentees suing multiple defendants, it may be even more critical to make sure that an adequate pre-suit analysis has been conducted with respect to each defendant and each accused product. I think for defendants in patent infringement action, it's important to remember that attorneys' fees don't always stem from the issues that the parties spent most of their time actually litigating. The inadequacy of a pre-suit infringement investigation can, under certain circumstances, justify an exceptional case finding, even when infringement was not the focus of the actual litigation. In the next case we'll look at, AVX Corp. versus Presidio, the constitutional requirement of standing is front and center of the Federal Circuit's decision. 
Let's first take a closer look at what standing is. Sure. This is an issue that has really drawn a lot of attention at the federal circuit since appeals from post-grant proceedings like IPRs first started arriving at the court. Because Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution limits its grant of the judicial power to cases or controversies, any party that appeals to an Article 3 court, which would include the federal circuit, must have standing before that court can consider the merits of the case. Now, for a party to have standing, it must show an injury in fact and a causal connection between the injury and the conduct complained of and a likelihood that that injury will be redressed by a favorable decision. An injury, in fact, is a legally protected interest, which is concrete and particularized and actual or imminent, not conjectural or hypothetical. Unlike in federal court, a person does not need to have this Article III standing to file an IPR petition and obtain a patent trial and appeal board final written decision because Article III requirements do not apply to administrative agencies like the Patent and Trademark Office. So this creates an interesting dynamic where an IPR petitioner that lost on some or all of its challenges before the board and wants to appeal portions of that decision might lack Article III standing to appeal the board's decision at the Federal Circuit. Now, the Federal Circuit explained in its 2018 JTAC Corp v. GKN automotive decision that when the record before the board is inadequate to show standing, the appellant must supplement the record to the extent necessary to explain and demonstrate its entitlement to judicial review on appeal, such as by submitting affidavits or other evidence to demonstrate that it actually has standing to be at the federal circuit. And how did standing play a part in AVX Corp versus Presidio? AVX challenged a Presidio components patent describing and claiming single-layer ceramic capacitors with certain features in an IPR proceeding before the patent trial and appeal board. Now, the board held that a few of the challenge claims were indeed unpatentable, but also held that AVX had failed to establish unpatentability for most of the challenge claims. So Presidio did not appeal the board's decision as to the unpatentable claims. But AVX appealed the board's decision as to the upheld claims. And Presidio challenged not only the merits of AVX's appeal, but also AVX's standing to appeal. In AVX's opening brief, it included a declaration from its general counsel to try to establish its constitutional standing. AVX's declarant highlighted its R&D budget and that AVX owns its own patents in the capacitor industry or space. AVX's declarant also highlighted past disputes between AVX and Presidio involving other patents and explained that a future threat of an injunction or litigation on these patents would harm AVX and dissuade customers from buying its product. AVX also argued that if the board's decision stood and were given a stopple effect under 35 U.S.C. Section 315E, then AVX would be materially hindered in the market and Presidio would be especially encouraged to assert this patent in future litigation. So 35 U.S.C. Section 315E prevents IPR petitioners from arguing in future proceedings anticipation or obviousness grounds that were raised or could have reasonably been raised in their IPR. 
So AVX's argument was essentially that this estoppel that they were now facing as a result of the IPR and losing the IPR would injure them in the market and hurt them in a future litigation, and that that injury was sufficient to create standing. Now, the Federal Circuit ultimately rejected AVX's arguments and held that AVX lacked standing to bring its appeal to the Federal Circuit. So first, the court rejected AVX's argument that the effects of Section 315E's estoppel provision provided a sufficient basis for standing. In fact, the Federal Circuit had similarly rejected this argument in earlier cases like Figenics and JTAC. But even more, this panel noted that the Federal Circuit has not yet decided whether the estoppel provision of Section 315E would even apply where an IPR petitioner had lacked Article III standing to appeal the board's decision to the Federal Circuit. And the panel expressly declined to decide that issue in this case, both because it had not been briefed and also because there was no live controversy where AVX was actually testing whether Section 315E's estoppel provision would bar it from raising the obviousness challenges that the board had reviewed and rejected. So the court also rejected AVX's competitor standing rationale. The court explained that in all of its cases where standing rested on this type of competitive harm, the challenged government action non-speculatively threatened economic injury to the challenger by the ordinary operation of economic forces. But here, the government's action in upholding specific patent claims did not lead to a harmful competitive effect. While noting that a patent claim could potentially have a harmful competitive effect on a would-be challenger if that challenger were, for example, currently using the claim features or non-speculatively planning to do so in competition, AVX had not shown that it was engaging in or had non-speculative plans to engage in conduct that would arguably be covered by these upheld claims. For example, AVX did not assert that it was developing new capacitors that Presidio would likely argue fall within the scope of the upheld claims, nor did AVX contend that it had set aside resources to develop such products but couldn't move forward because these upheld claims stood in the way. So as a result, the court dismissed the appeal for lack of jurisdiction. In another case, RPX Corp. v. Chan Bond, RPX has actually petitioned the Supreme Court to review the Federal Circuit's standing jurisprudence. The Supreme Court asked for the solicitor's views on the issue, and the solicitor's office essentially agreed with the Federal Circuit's analysis and recommended against granting certiorari. JTAC has also filed a petition for certiorari in its case, and so that too is pending at the Supreme Court. So we will have to stay tuned to see what the Supreme Court ultimately does with those petitions. At least for now, though, appellate standing will continue to be an important consideration for petitioners when deciding to bring an IPR challenge. And patentees who have prevailed at the PTAB but are now defending the board's final written decision before the Federal Circuit should carefully consider whether the petitioner has adequate constitutional standing to even bring that appeal. Our guest has been Jason Romrell, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.